called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus as they stood in the temple area and asked each other, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. Well, we spent the last few weeks uh, looking through this amazing miracle that Jesus performed of raising Lazarus from the dead. And very soon we're going to be coming up to the time where Jesus has his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and, and the crowds calling out and the excitement of it all. But in between those two events we sort of have a number of meaningful things but also kind of strange things happening and in this this passage is sort of wedged between those two big events and it might not stick out in our memories quite so much but when I I came to prepare for today uh, the more I looked at the passage the more I really enjoyed it how fascinating how amazing is our sovereign God in the way he works and how true these events are to all that Jesus has been saying throughout the Gospel of John. So before we look into God's word this morning, let's pray and ask his help to understand. Dear God, we pray this morning that we'll have hearts open to hearing your truth. We pray that you'll teach us and build us up from the hearing of your word. I pray that all that I say is true and honouring to you. Amen. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. And I don't have to tell you, we hear the rule all the time. You know it when you see the therefore. We have to go back and ask, what is it therefore? And in this case, that's pretty easy. This large group of people, the disciples, Lazarus' family, the mourners and other people in the community, they've all witnessed a man who was dead for four days walk out of the tomb alive at the command of Jesus. And therefore, they had seen what Jesus had done and believed in him. And your first thought was, well, yeah, of course they did. It's it's almost like a redundant statement. And if it ended there, it would be fine. It would make perfect sense. But verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. What? Why? 
Because we used to say, when, back when I was in primary school, which wasn't too long ago, hopefully, uh, they, they went to dob on him. They went to tattletale to the teachers to get him into trouble. Just imagine you, you're watching two guys standing there in the crowd that day, standing right next to each other. And Jesus proves that he is the resurrection and the life. He proves that he has power over death because he's the author of life. And the guy standing on the left says, this is the most amazing, wonderful thing I've ever seen. I believe in Jesus. And the guy standing right next to him on the right says, this is horrible. I've got to go and tell the authorities about this. And the guy on the left turns to him and says, mate, what, are you kidding? Didn't you just see that? And he just can't account for his friend's negative response. I'd like us to turn for a moment to Luke chapter 16 and from verse 19 onwards. Luke, Luke 16 and from 19. I won't read it, but <clears throat> excuse me. You can just skim over the text if you like. There's, there's an interesting discussion if this is just a, one of the normal parables of Jesus or if it's describing something more actual. Uh, that's an interesting conversation for another time. It's also interesting the man here is, is also called Lazarus. It's not the same Lazarus, of course. But if you're familiar with the story, this Lazarus is a poor, sick man who trusted in God. And the other man was rich and satisfied with his luxurious life but had no time for God or showing mercy to others. They both die. Lazarus goes to peace and safety in Abraham's bosom, but the rich man is now in torment. And when he can't get any comfort for himself, only then he stops to think about his brothers who are still alive. Verse 27, I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that if they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone raises from the dead. Now, I imagine if I was there listening to Jesus teach that the first time, I'd probably think, well, he's sort of, he's obviously over-exaggerating a bit there to, to make his point stand out. Kind of, you know, maybe it, like me at work, you know, commenting about a lazy uh, worker saying that guy wouldn't, still wouldn't do anything if a bomb went off under him. You know, you understand it's, it's just an exaggeration. I mean, if a bomb literally went off under him, something would definitely happen. But here, here we are back in the Gospel of John, and standing in front of the former tomb of Lazarus, and it's a former tomb because Lazarus doesn't need it anymore. He's walking and talking and doing all manner of things that no dead people should rightly be able to do. And here's the question. What's, what, what's the difference between the man standing on the left who sees the dead raised to life and believes in Jesus and the man standing on his right who sees the dead raised to life and hates Jesus. Remember in the parable, the rich man mistakenly thinks that if someone from the dead goes to them, they will, what? Repent. Repent. Turn away from the sins they loved, forsake them, and turn to follow Christ. If someone does something as amazing as raise from the dead, 
then surely they'll repent of their sins and, and believe in him, right? But the answer, what does Jesus teach? No, they will not even if someone raises from the dead. Jesus' teaching wasn't exaggeration. It's a devastating reality. Evidence on its own means nothing. They won't accept it because their hearts are already cold and dead. Why do they hate Jesus so much? Jesus already told us back in chapter 7, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Want to see how much someone loves living their life the way that they choose, how much they love to be the God of their own life? Go and warn them that the Bible says that God's wrath abides on them and that they, they are his enemies because of their sinful living and see how many friends you make out of that. As Stephen Lawson says, the same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. Seeing Jesus rise from the dead led many people to believe in him, but it wasn't the ultimate cause of their belief. It couldn't be, or else everyone there would have believed, but they didn't. If seeing and accepting the evidence was the deciding factor in people having faith or not, then those who did believe and, and, and chose the right uh, idea about the evidence, they would have something to boast about before God. Because in some way, they must have been smarter than the person standing next to them. They must have maybe been more spiritual than the person next to them. They must have been a good person in some way to account for it other than the person standing right there next to them. But it can't be. Because we're taught in Ephesians, it's not by our works so that no one can boast. In Titus, we're told at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions. But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. What's the difference between the man on the left who saw and believed and the man on the right who saw and hated God's sovereign grace, God's mercy, God's plan before the foundation of the world to save a people for his glory, God's first changing us by his Holy Spirit from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. It's all of God and nothing from us. And that's been the consistent message all throughout the Gospel of John. And here we see a, a stunning real-life example of those who are Jesus' sheep and hear their shepherd's voice and those who don't. Let's continue. Verse 47. And the priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked, here, this man, here's this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. This isn't the first time the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead, but it's the first time there's a combined, serious, systematic effort made to have him crucified. 
Before this, there were like pockets of Pharisees here and there wanting to stone him or trying to bring him down. But now we have the full combined forces of the ruling religious elite. And what's the very first thing that they confess? Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. They admit the truth of Jesus' miracles too. Out out in public, they're trying to bring Jesus down. They're trying to dispute his authority, say that he's a, a drunkard or a sinner, say that he's only able to do these things by the power of Satan. Any excuse to lead people away from believing in him. Yet here they are behind closed doors in some seedy back room and they know he performs many miraculous signs. They know it's true. They don't even try and deny it. But just like those in the crowd who came to report to them, their hearts were also hard and so the evidence meant nothing to them. Look even how they refer to Jesus. They refer to him as this man. They they well and truly know who Jesus was. Everybody knew who Jesus was, but they won't even use his name. Such, Such contempt, such hatred. And now here comes the politics and the, and the power play. Here we start to see openly what this is truly all about. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Yes, the Romans did have ultimate control and yes, they couldn't have a, a nation in outright rebellion, but the Pharisees knew that Jesus was not a military leader. They knew he had no ambition to start some sort of revolution. That's nonsense. As John Calvin puts it, they came up with a plausible disguise for what they really wanted to do. Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks up. This guy is really cold and really hard. You know nothing at all. Now He's talking to the most knowledgeable, respected, educated religious leaders of the nation. You men know nothing. What a slap in the face. He's basically calling them a bunch of fools. But he wants to establish himself as the big shot, that he's the leader who's going to save the day. You do not realise that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Well, there's a, there's a politician speaking, if ever I heard one. He, he makes murder just sound so much better, so much more palatable. In fact, planning... Uh, to murder Jesus seems like the most obvious solution, like it was nothing at all. One man. What's that when you think about a whole nation, right? He's not worried about the things of God. He's not worried about what's right or wrong. That word better there, the Greek, it means expedient or profitable. He wants to murder Jesus because it's the most expedient solution to their problem. He wants to murder Jesus because it's the most profitable solution for themselves and their own interests. This from a man who's supposed to be the high priest of God, but his true God is power and position. Yet something amazing is happening behind the scenes. Verse 51, this is, this is John's commentary on the, on the events that he's reporting. Caiaphas did not say this on his own, But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. You know, Caiaphas was a horrible man, but 
in a way, he was actually a brilliant theologian. The only problem with that was that he had absolutely no idea what he was really talking about. Our first reading this morning was from Isaiah, and God was sending the Assyrians to act as punishment against God's own people. The only thing was, the king of Assyria had no idea whatsoever that he was being used in God's plan, that he was God's intended means for dealing with his people. And yet God says, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride in his heart. The Assyrian king was there for himself. He was there for his own good, for his own profit, for his own power. Just like Caiaphas was planning Jesus' death for his own good, for his own profit, for his own power. But neither of these men had any idea of the sovereignty of God. That God's plan involves the evil of men for the glory of God. The king of Assyria was doing exactly as he pleased, but he was also doing exactly what God had planned. Caiaphas was doing exactly as he pleased, but he was also doing exactly what God had planned. God was using this wicked man, Caiaphas, as a prophet, and Caiaphas had no idea. While Caiaphas was thinking and talking about material things, God was speaking through him about spiritual things. And for those with spiritual ears to listen, Caiaphas was actually pointing forward to the substitutionary atonement of Christ. God used this so-called powerful man as his puppet to speak profound truth to those who belong to Christ, while everyone else totally misses it. Jesus would die, and he would die for the benefit of the nation, but not how Caiaphas understood it. Jesus would die in place of his people for their benefit, for their sins to be forgiven. And its effect would go on beyond just that small area of land that made up the nation of Israel. Christ would bring together his sheep from within the nation of Israel and beyond from all corners of the globe. Jesus said back in in chapter 10, I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not from this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is what Caiaphas is, is testifying to. Caiaphas meant Jesus' death for evil, but God meant it for good. In Peter's first sermon recorded in Acts, he says to the Jews, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is how God's sovereignty works. We act as we wish, according to the evil of our hearts, and we're fully accountable for our own heart's desires. Yet, God has ordained every one of those things that has come to pass and planned them for good, for his own glory. It's just mind-boggling when you, when you try to think that through. God has a greater power working behind the scenes than we can even fathom. Verse 53 onwards. So from that day, they plotted to take his life. Jesus no longer moved around publicly. He withdrew to a region near the desert. It's almost time for the Passover. People are asking each other, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? 
and the chief priests have got their plan in order and have orders that anyone who know where Jesus is should report him so they can arrest him. Why did Jesus withdraw? Was he scared of them and their plan? No. But Jesus was acting on a divine timetable. Remember back to Jesus' first miracle turning uh, water into wine at, at um, at the wedding and he says, my hour has not yet come. The religious leaders were out to kill him and and God would allow that in his plan. But even the timing wasn't up to them. Jesus would die at the exact appointed time. His death would come at the Passover time. He would be the sacrifice at Passover as the wrath of God passed over those who belonged to Christ and was taken once and for all by him on the cross in their place. Meanwhile, people are gossiping, enjoying the rumour mill, a bit of excitement. They asked each other, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? The original language there, there's an implied negative. Surely Jesus won't come here, will he? He knows what will happen if he does. He wouldn't dare, would he? And everyone's out like little tattletale spies ready to dob him in if they see him. That's the Pharisees' plan. But we know that God, in his sovereignty, has a very different plan. What a strange list of goings-on. This small, strange period of time between the miracle of Lazarus uh, till the time where Jesus enters Jerusalem. There's so much packed in there. What do you take away from that passage this morning? Maybe you are one of Jesus' sheep. Maybe you've been his for a long time but you have children or parents or relations or dear friends who have been alongside you right next to you and that you have yearned to come to know uh, that they would come to know Jesus as their saviour and you've done your best to teach them and they've heard the same gospel and they've read the same bible and they've seen the same evidence and yet they do not believe. Maybe this morning you need to take rest and and comfort in God's sovereignty. That when it comes uh, to their salvation, it's only God that can change a person's heart. To trust in Jesus when he says that all the Father gives me will come to me. Maybe this morning you're suffering because of the direct evil plans of others or maybe just from the general effects of of sin entering this world where we now suffer pain and loss and death. I can't imagine how Mary and Martha could have possibly seen anything good come from their brother dying, and in that sense it wasn't good, but it was good in the sovereign plan of God. I can't imagine how the disciples could have possibly seen anything good in this planning and scheming of this brutal uh, torture and execution of Jesus at the hands of wicked men. But it was good in the sovereign plan of God. I can't imagine how you and I could possibly see how your pain and suffering now, uh, that there's anything good in that but it is good in the sovereign plan of God. Or maybe you're back at the beginning of our passage this morning. Maybe 
You're like the crowd standing there where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But what does the evidence mean to you? Our minister Carl likes to, to mention that uh, in years gone by he read the book More Than a Carpenter, which is a collection of evidence of, of the truth of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. He saw and believed the truth of, of Jesus Christ and today his life as a minister is totally uh, different than what he would have imagined for himself as a young man. But Carl is not the only person to have read that book. According to the publishers, over 30 million copies have been sold and given away. And so for many, many people, that same evidence has found no place in their hearts at all. If you are convinced by the evidence, then it's by the sovereign grace of God that your eyes were opened and you believe that Jesus is the saviour from sin and death. But how much has that impacted your life? Maybe this morning you know that you've believed, but there's a coolness in your heart, sin getting a stronghold, doubt in your mind. I'm reminded of the man in, in Mark 9 who brings his son to be healed and says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe this morning you need to say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And take comfort, as, as Paul told the Philippians, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What effect has the evidence of Christ's victory over sin and death had on you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign over all things. We thank you that we need not fear the actions of evil people, that we need not worry that your plans will ever be undone. We thank you that Jesus came to die for the punishment of our sins, that he has power over sin and death. We thank you that you have given us eyes to see and hearts to believe in him. We pray that you will continue to grant us repentance and faith in you. We pray that in good times and in bad that we will trust you in your promise that all things will work together for the good according to your perfect plan. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.